If you've got a Bible in your hands or on your phone, I want to invite you to find the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And if you don't have either of those things, that's okay. The, the words of the text will be up on the screen in just a few moments. But we're looking at Matthew 28, the first 10 verses. This is the, uh, the account of Jesus' resurrection. And we're really just going to investigate one question this morning related to um, the events of that morning. The morning that Jesus rose, we're going to just look at one question and two implications that flow from the answer that we'll find to that question. Okay. The text is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Once you've found it or um, have uh, reached a place where you're content to just look up here at the screen and follow along, let's stand in honor of God and his word and we'll read. Okay. This is the account of the resurrection according to the Gospel of Matthew. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. And you may be seated. The account that we just read is so familiar that we are very likely to miss the great curiosity that meets us in verse 9. The great curiosity that meets us in verse 9 is this visit that the running, the running women get from the risen Jesus. That's what we read in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And in light of the information that we're given already in the account, in light of what we find in the first eight verses, it's very reasonable to ask the question, Why this visit from Jesus? That's the one question that we're asking this morning. Why does Jesus visit them? Let's think about it together. Notice first that they didn't need information. Notice 
Jesus' three main points in verse 10. Notice what he says to them. Notice in verse 10 that Jesus gives them the exact same directions that the angel had already given them. He gives them the same three points. Number one, do not be afraid. They already knew that. That's what the angel said. Do not be afraid. We read that in verse 5. His next point is, tell my brothers to Galilee. They all go to Galilee. They already knew that too. Angel said that, verse 7. Third point, there they will see me. They already knew that. The angel had told them that. That's also verse 7. Jesus gives them no new information. He simply repeats what they've already been told. And so we might think, okay, well, maybe they needed to hear it again. Maybe they weren't getting it right. Maybe they, have you ever been around someone that needed some redirection after initial instruction had been given? Teachers? Are there any teachers out there? Elementary students? Maybe they need a redirect. But notice according to verse 8 that they did not need correction. They didn't need information, nor did they need correction. They're doing great. According to verse 8, look at verse 8. So they departed quickly. The angel had said, go quickly. They're doing that. They're going quickly. They ran from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. That's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They are on mission, serious Mission. They're getting it exactly right. They haven't been derailed. They haven't been distracted. They're doing a great job. And it's at just this point that Jesus meets them offering no new information and no correction. So why is he here? Well, let's admit that we're not told why. text doesn't say what his purpose was in meeting them. All we can do is observe what happened. All we can do is observe that they did get something that they didn't have before. They did get something new. Not information, not correction. They got an opportunity. What I'm calling this morning the great Opportunity. According to verse 9, they got an opportunity to worship the risen Jesus. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up. Notice the three verbs here. They came up and took hold and Worshipped him. The, the section that we just read this morning, the first 10 verses of Matthew 28, this resurrection account, can really be divided into five parts. Part one, the great desire. That's verse one. The great desire. They got up at dawn and they went to see the tomb. That's the great desire. They wanted to go see the tomb. So desirous were they that they got up at dawn. The great desire. Verse 2, the great earthquake. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Part 3, the great appearance. 
There was this angel whose appearance was like lightning. That's verse 3. Verse 8, the great joy. They departed quickly with great joy. So the great desire and the great earthquake and the great appearance and the great joy. And finally in verse 9, the great opportunity to lay hold of the nail-scarred but risen Jesus. And worship him. And for just a few minutes, we're going to consider that opportunity that they were given and what it means for us. It's a very simple series of events. Very simple. They came up, they took hold, and they worshiped. But it's so instructive. We need it so badly, okay? Let's just try to learn these two things from this scene that probably only lasted for a few minutes, and then they were on their way. A few moments. But it speaks so loudly and in such a lasting way to God's intentions and to our priorities, okay? So two things regarding this opportunity that they had to worship. What do we see? First of all, we see the priority that God places on time wasted in worship. We see the priority that God places on time wasted in worship. I'm being deliberately provocative, okay? When I say time wasted in worship, this is what I mean. These women have a charge to carry out. They've been given a mission by God through the agency of the angel. They are on a mission from God and then... God interrupts his own initiative. I love that. This is God's initiative, and he interrupts his own initiative. God the Father has given direction through the angel, and then God in the flesh, God of the Son, halts it. His own initiative. He shows up and interrupts his own business. And from a purely strategic point of view, this constitutes a delay. The angel said, go quickly. Apparently, there was some urgency to their mission. And the women, to their credit, are going quickly. And then God interrupts his own initiative and creates his own traffic jam. He punctures his own tire. And all the momentum stops. For the purpose of worship. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about the worship of Jesus? What if the Christian life is mostly about worship? What if the Christian life isn't mostly about the work that we do, but worshiping someone else for the work that they've already done? What if apparently wasteful worship is the priority today, like it was on that day? Is there any other biblical evidence that we could scrounge up to support the idea that God approves of the wasteful worship of his son? 
Do you remember the account of this other woman? This woman who brought this treasure that she had. It was worth a lot of money. It's this jar of ointment. I guess some people like expensive jars of ointment. She brings it and she shatters it and she pours it over Jesus' head. And it all drains away. And Jesus' own disciples, the ones who supposedly cared about him and loved him the most, they looked at this scene and said, their exact words, why this waste? This ointment could have been sold for a large sum of money, and the money could have been given to the poor. And then Jesus responds to their perspective by providing the divine perspective on the woman's actions. He tells them that what they have called a wasteful thing, he considers a beautiful thing. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. See, what we call wasteful, God calls beautiful. Let much time and much treasure and much talent be wasted on Jesus. Let the best minds among our young people who could do anything they want and let the the strongest bodies, the most creative minds, the most beautiful voices that could make so much money doing other things be completely poured out and wasted on Jesus Christ. Let, let the Eric Littles of the world, the Olympic champions, continue to go to the middle of nowhere in China to make the name of Jesus known and die without another word from him. And let the, the Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Elliots of the world, Wheaton-educated, Go to an uneducated people in a third world country just so that they can know Jesus. And as for the rest of us, let many, many unproductive moments pass because our minds are feeding on Christ, worshiping Jesus, because what we would call wasteful, God calls beautiful. God sees what we don't see, that it's impossible to give too much to Jesus. He deserves the best and your best. And we as a people, you know this as well as I, we have never had more information available to us. What the world needs more than anything are Christians whose hearts are delighting in Jesus. And if you're graduating soon, either high school or college, 
and you get that wonderful question that we all love when we're 18 or when we're 22. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? What comes next? Consider the possibility that the best answer you could give is, I'm going to be a worshiper. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to waste my life in the worship of Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in this scene is the priority that God places on time Wasted in worship. The second and last thing, just observing this little scene of worship in front of us, is we see the centrality of the person and work of Jesus. The centrality of the person and work of Jesus, that he is the focal point, the tomb was not the main thing. According to verse 1, that's what they wanted to see. The task is not the main thing. According to verse 7, that's what they needed to do. The main thing, this is so simple. The main thing was Jesus himself. His very person was their central focus. Okay, now... That seems like a very elementary observation, so obvious that it not, we don't even need to point it out. I don't want to think with you just lastly about how critical this is for us, especially right now, the centrality of the person and work of Jesus. Let's bring that observation down to where the rubber meets the road right now. In every age, there will be contemporary issues that require a Christian response. And in every age, there will be doctrinal controversies that require a Christian response. And in every age, there will be ministry tasks that call for diligent work. We've got all these things floating around us, contemporary issues, doctrinal controversies, church controversies, Ministry tasks that we're working on. There's so much to think about out there, isn't there? There's a lot to respond to in the name of Christ. And two years ago, just think back two years ago, you all, April 2020, most of us celebrated an Easter unlike any ever before. A lot of us were probably alone with a very small group of people, maybe just family. Not at a big service like this. Not with all the music like this. Most of us, it was probably very, very different. And think about the last two years, what we have witnessed. We have been pulled in an almost unimaginable number of different directions. Social issues. Political issues. Cultural issues. Church issues. Relational issues that have sprung up as a result of all those other things. In, in many cases, all of those things I just mentioned are worthy of time and effort. But none of them are the proper central focus. All are important and none are primary. But they so easily become central. 
And so I'm just asking you to consider the possibility that in the last two years, some of those things that I just mentioned have worked their way into the central focus of your life. That some of those things have risen for you to the level of primary and are eating up your energy and your time and your concern. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's just you yourself. That you have become the center of your own world. You've become self-centered. That would not be surprising at all, okay? I'm not throwing stones at anyone here. It would not be surprising at all if we've lost our bearings a little bit in the last two years. Just notice in this passage, what is central? What is the focal point? Not a cause, not an argument, a person. We see the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the object of worship. It's him, his very person. And we do want to be real enough and honest enough to admit that we have many, many concerns. We have lots of stuff to work on. There are people in this room working really hard on their marriage right now. And there are people in this room working really hard on rooting out a sin issue in their life. And there are people working really hard because they want to plant a church. Or they've taken on a new ministry initiative. And they're working really hard on that. And there are people in this room working really hard on their parenting. And there are people in here that are just working really hard on themselves. And I just want to remind you that the best thing that you can do for your marriage, for your parenting, for your sin issue, for your church plant, for your new ministry initiative, for the relational thing that you're working on, the best thing you can do in any of those arenas is center yourself on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness and joy and healthy relationships come as the result of a properly centered life. And there is only one proper center for the life of a human being, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is an eternal center. He is the center eternally. In heaven, he will be surrounded and encircled, and the lamb who was slain is the one who is praised forever. And so I want to invite you today on Easter Sunday, 2022, whatever the last two years have been like, to recenter your heart and your energy on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you have never centered your life on him, if you've never come to him in worship, I invite you to center your life on him today. May Jesus Christ completely interrupt you on your way, wherever you're going. You're running a different direction, and may he step into your path today and present himself to you for the purpose of worship and being the new center of your life.
He presents himself to you today. He presents himself to me so that I may be recentered on him and waste many more moments simply worshiping the Lord Jesus. Now, everyone, go in great joy and in the comfort of this news that has changed the world and has changed us, that he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Amen. Father, we bow our hearts before you today. We acknowledge as mere human beings that we have not been designed to center on anything except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when when we make something else our main concern and our center, everything goes wrong. And so I pray on behalf of those who have never bowed before Jesus and given him their lives that today by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would look on him with new eyes, with eyes of of love and not skepticism, with eyes of faith and not doubt, and say of him, my Savior and my King, the new center of my life, I worship you. I give myself to you. I pray that that would take hold in my heart. I pray that that would take hold in the heart of every person in this room. And when we would be so excited about pouring our lives out in worship of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his beautiful name. Amen.